Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK, brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk about Russian diamond sanctions, news from Tucson, and a blogger's mysterious Instagram suspension. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK, jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles. And I'm with Rob Bates, news director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from New York City. How's the, how's things? Things are good. Um, when listeners are listening to this, when this episode is out, I was supposed to be in Colombia. We're recording this on a Thursday, and I was due to leave on Friday the 23rd to fly to Bogota to meet the British jeweler Pippa Small. And then we were due to carry on to a community in northwest province of Choco, which is towards the Darien Gap. If anybody knows where that is, it's a really treacherous quite dangerous part of Panama that connects Panama to Colombia and it's uh, thick jungle, no roads, and there's quite a bit of, I believe, narco traffic and all kinds of other unsavory business that goes on there. And unfortunately, those security threats have revved up and I had to cancel my trip actually because like we couldn't go to the gold region, which is a shame because it was really, you know, this a really inspiring story of where Pippa sources some of her gold and w- what she's trying to do by c- working with this community of artisans in a different part of Colombia who use the gold from the Choco province. And it was going to be a great story because gold is one of the biggest topics in our world and how it's sourced and how we can make sure it's sourced responsibly and what it means when you're talking about recycled gold and what it means when you're talking about mined gold and all the complexity of that conversation I was really hoping to illuminate. So I I do hope there's a point later in the year when we can return, but I just wanted to kind of close the loop on that since I had mentioned earlier this year that I would be going and I think now I've learned my lesson. I should just sit tight on these things until they actually happen and then I can talk about them. So that's a long way of introducing myself today. Is is there any connection or any known connection between the narco trafficking and the gold mining or are these two separate things? That's a very good question. I mean, I don't know exactly what the connection is. I think this community tries to sell its gold on the up and up. I don't know that it's funding the narco trafficking, but I think they use the same routes. You know, there are rivers here, there are transport, you know, channels that overlap. I mean, I think what this underscores for me is that some of our most precious materials in fact, the most precious materials that we have as a, as a culture, as society, come from some very challenging places that are under different kinds of security threats all the time, and that these are communities that are trying to mine gold responsibly and trying to, you know, feed their families. You know, the way Pippa framed it was this community is traditionally mined gold there. It's these women. And they realize that it's a finite resource. And so they try not to mine all of it. You know, there's no mechanized system there trying to get as much gold out of the rivers and streams as possible. They're really trying to just use what they need so that there's something left there for their children to benefit from. It's sad to think of communities that live under such difficult conditions because we're mining what is meant to be the material that our sentiments of love are embodied in, it takes on a different sort of vibe. It's like if we all knew where the gold that in our jewels came from and how many people touched it along the way and what those people had to endure in order to get that gold and to sell it on, I think our minds would collectively be blown. Yeah. And that's, we should emphasize, this was actually considered a very good, safe, responsible, I guess, a co-op or a collective 
Yeah, a collective. I mean, I think the collective carries on. I don't think they're, it's more that I can't go visit and Pippa can't go visit. And unless you're really a member of that community, you're not welcome there at the moment. Nor should you insist on going. Like I was certainly, I'm no gonzo journalist. I wasn't going to sort of blaze through there insisting I see this when nobody around me thinks it's safe. Clearly, I was going to respect those people issuing those warnings. So, yeah, I mean, and, and to your larger point, I was just, pointing out that this is considered a responsible producer of gold that respects the environment uh, and is trying to do the right thing. And a lot of the gold producers, certainly not all, but a lot of the small scale gold producers, there is some involvement with organized crime and terrorist groups. And uh, again, it's not all, but it it happens. Yeah, you're right. You're very right. You know, the people doing it are basically doing it to stay alive. I mean, they have no other option as far as alternative income streams, or that's the the best income stream out there. But there are a lot of issues in the gold supply chain. And it's kind of ironic that even this, by all accounts, extremely responsible co-op can be at times too dangerous to visit. Exactly. So... Sadly, I won't be reporting back anytime soon from there, but the hope is that when it is safe or when we can have more guarantees that our passage to the mine, which is down a river south of this city called Quibdo, you know, would be our safety and would be insured, then then hopefully I will be able to return. Safety always first. We certainly don't want you to get hurt. Thank you. So uh, I'm glad you're staying home, but you did go to another event recently, the big Tucson Gem Show. You want to tell us about that? Yeah. You know, we had our last guest, the wonderful designer, Vanessa Fernandez. We talked to her a bit about what she discovered in Tucson. And I think I might have said this in the preface to that episode was this year, like many years, was not a blockbuster, grand new discovery that has everybody at the show buzzing. There wasn't some new find. I mean, in the past, we'd seen Ethiopian opals come out. We'd seen Ethiopian emeralds. Way back in Tucson's of yore that I never attended, there were massive finds of the Paribas tourmaline that got everybody buzzing and has made a really lasting impact on the market. I did see gems, though, that have been in part of the supply and have been well understood and Use gems, just come to the fore. No fewer than six designers that I ran into and really high-end, really talented designers were all looking for faceted crystal barrel. So not the uber expensive Alexandrite crystal barrel, not even cabochons. A lot of them were looking at these limey green, yellowy, mostly yellow stones. So there was a real vibe for yellow gems and particularly crystal barrel. And of course, yellow sapphire and a few of the other gems that take on that hue. Uh, I saw a lot of cobalt spinel from both from Tanzania and I think the original cobalt spinel or the one that people think of when that term comes up is from Vietnam. And so those kinds of vibrant blue hues, a lot of interest around zircon, which is one of those gems that jewelers love and gem people love because of its refractive index and its color scheme. It comes in all kinds of different colors. It's so, so bright, but among consumers, the name zircon just kind of conjures zirconia. So it has to fight a bit of negative reputation from people who don't really understand it. But jewelers are hot for it, so I'd say Zircon is definitely one of those trending gems. It was a good show. I think not ginormous for people in terms of sales, but probably pretty steady and reasonable compared to the last few years, which were quite good and quite strong. Um, I sat down with Stephen Webster for a time, which is always great because he's been going to Tucson since 1983, I believe, and is just such a rock hound, such a 
genuine colored stone lover and he's still buying with the exuberance and enthusiasm he had 40 years ago which is pretty remarkable he's always a really interesting character at the shows because he'll go out to like the shows that are on the periphery of the fine jewelry or fine gem shows in downtown so he'll spend his time at the convention center where agta is held or the tent where the ggx show is but then he'll go out to kino or to like mineral city these places where you can just find a lot of rocks and fossils and all kinds of crazy things and he has the eye where he can spot some great gem material that's dusty and needs to be polished up a bit And he just has that ability to see it. And one thing he told me, which I really never thought about or didn't really know, is, you know, he came out with his groundbreaking Crystal Haze collection, I want to say in the late 90s. And it was thin faceted, thin stone, layers of hard stones like lapis or malachite or various quartzes. And then he had a layer of faceted clear quartz on top. And so it had this really big look where you'd get a flash of color, but then you've got the sort of clear quartz that's giving it this interesting play of light. And... It was one of the first collections that was really geared towards women buyers, towards female self-purchasers, which is a topic we heard a lot about maybe in the early 2000s because it was such a new phenomenon for jewelers. You know, prior to that, it used to be men buying jewelry for their ladies and men didn't understand a lot of that kind of funky designer jewelry that people like Stephen Webster started to create. They were after the very classic, precious kinds of jewels that have sold for millennia, you know, like rubies and sapphires and emeralds and diamonds, clearly. And those things were understandable to male buyers. But when it came to things like crystal haze, men just didn't get it. And that whole phenomenon of female self-purchase, as we well know, 25, 30 years later, has reshaped the business, you know, it's really become one of the reasons lots of jewelers remain in business because they've cultivated clientele of women buyers who know what they want, who are comfortable spending that money and who are drawn to things that reflect their personal style in a way that a man buying for them really wouldn't be able to do. This podcast is brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds mission is to grow and strengthen consumer confidence by providing integrity across the natural diamond industry, offering unrivaled diamond grading and testing exclusively for natural untreated diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds provides diamond tears with confidence in a report of each diamond's four C's. Every diamond graded at De Beers Institute of Diamonds is also given a unique inscription number, allowing the diamond's details to be tracked and viewed on their website. Visit institute.debeers.com to learn more and register for their grading services. Did you get any indication about the economy this year? Because we're hearing so many different things about how the economy is shaping up. All the statistics are extremely good right now, but people are very nervous about what's going to happen to jewelry. Did you get any sense of how business is and how was the mood in in general? The mood was pretty good. I think people had Pretty good shows and better maybe than they anticipated, but not blockbuster. I think people were surprised, actually. I think they expected worse shows or a worse show. In terms of the vendors, this is what I'm speaking of. I think pricing kind of remains the same. Again, a lot of the higher-end gemstones, I wouldn't say we saw great big price increases this year. They're still the same high prices that we had in place in 23. I think supply is still challenged. There are issues... And when I speak to Stuart Robertson, who's, of course, our gem market guru with Gem Guide, he explains it that during COVID, of course, supply chains were really compromised. And those issues, while some of the shipping issues obviously aren't a factor anymore, what happened was that when 
communities in, let's say, Africa that were mining gems when COVID struck and the buyers were no longer coming to town to buy the rough or to buy any aspect of that and any place in that supply chain, that those miners went back to their farming communities or their agricultural pursuits and in many cases didn't come back to the mines. So there's still stuff left in the ground, but the people who were mining it just had to kind of redirect. And so that's the challenge on supply chains is that we're just not quite back and it is still one of these lingering effects of COVID. It was better than expected. I don't have a great big way of predicting what all that means for the coming year, but I think people are in pretty good mood. So generally a most people are feeling pretty buoyant. All right, cool. Yeah. Well, thank you for that long, long reflection. Talk to me about Russian sanctions because we keep seeing sort of updates on what's going on and what do our listeners need to know? So I spent most of uh, President's Day on the phone talking about Russian sanctions. And I talked to a lot of people who are very involved in the negotiations uh, in industry. Apparently, the way it's set out, and this will likely happen, there's going to be sanctions starting March 1st. Now, we're recording this on February 22nd. Right now, there's not been any issued rules. It could happen very soon. It will have to happen very soon, but we're getting right to the deadline of the first and there's the rules haven't been issued and it's freaking a lot of people out because the rules could represent a big change in how people import in that they will need to have some kind of evidence. This relates to polished diamonds, one carat and over, the way the rules have been set out or envisioned is that every importer will need to have some kind of evidence to attest that their diamonds aren't from Russia. And it's not clear what that evidence will be or if it will be required every time and what will be the penalties for not having that evidence. So hopefully that will all be clear, but it was very striking to me with so little time left, how many of these questions are still outstanding and how little answers we have. So that's happening in March. Uh, the second phase of the sanctions is supposed to happen in September, and that will be a huge change as envisioned to how the industry does business. The idea is that all diamonds in rough form will go through Antwerp and will eventually have to be tracked through the pipeline through what's called a G7 certification system, and they'll have to use one of the existing diamond tracing systems that are out there. And there's Tracer from De Beers. And I also learned that Tracer is now being overseen by Paul Rowley, who's one of the big sales executives at De Beers. And that kind of makes sense for him to oversee it simply because he's the one handling the sales and Tracer tracks the diamonds through the pipelines. Now, this is very controversial. A lot of people see it as Antwerp wanting to get back some of the market share it's going to lose by banning Russian diamonds. People think it's somewhat hypocritical since Antwerp for a long time opposed any sanctions and now they all of a sudden like sanctions, but they like the fact that it's coming through their city. I'm wary to ascribe motives to people. So I don't want to say that that's the total reason. I think a lot of people do think rooting the diamonds through Antwerp will be better as far as strengthening the system and making it a more secure system. But 
it's going to be a big change. People are unhappy because people in this industry don't like change and they don't like to spend money and they don't like to waste time. And this will do all those things. You could even make the argument that this is supposed to make Russian goods less attractive, but this is going to add so many fees on to non-Russian goods that in a way it could backfire and that it could make Russian goods more attractive to buy. And you just couldn't sell them to any of the G7 countries, which again would be a huge loss for most diamond sellers because the United States is about 50% of the market. European Union is about another 10 or 15%. So that's 65% of the market. So the G7 is a huge part of the overall market. And now there's just news about Japan coming back and their stock exchange setting records. So that could turn into a more important uh, diamond market too. So I guess, you know, what was interesting was I, I talked all day and I had a lot of questions and I got some answers, but I didn't get as many as I expected. Yeah, it seems like a lot to be grappling with if you haven't kind of thought about it or had these discussions with your suppliers already. Yeah, and, and I, I should know that Russian diamonds are basically banned in the United States as it is. It's kind of an indirect ban, but you're not supposed to do anything that helps Alroso, which is the dominant diamond miner over there, or Grib, which is the smaller diamond miner over there. So those are both subject to sanctions. You're not supposed to be buying from them or buying any of their goods. So technically, people should be asking for these assurances already. And I think a lot of the big jewelry chains, a lot of the big jewelry associations have proactively gotten their members to be asking for these assurances. Now, does everybody ask for these assurances? Probably not. And I'm guessing most jewelers and most companies aren't either asking for them or supplying them right now, but I think they'll have to, right? And I think that's what the government's going to want. So yeah, it's, it's going to be a very, very big change. I think long-term, it'll be good because this industry has been grappling with issues of provenance going all the way back to conflict diamonds and blood diamonds, which was started in 1998. So that's 25 years ago. So for 25 years, this industry has been dealing with issues of provenance and where diamonds come from. And it hasn't really come up with an answer. And I, I think it, it'll be a positive thing long-term. Now, short-term, it could be a huge disaster. I mean, short-term, it could really, really cause problems. And we've certainly seen that with some other things that we've looked at as far as like the, the Jade Act and some of these other things that we've seen, the Dodd-Frank conflict gold regulations. But I think long-term, it'll be a good thing. And I think the industry needs to know where its materials come from. Agreed. I think if you if you take that long-term view, then that's one of the probably more pressing issues that will be sort of pivotal in the marketplace in, in coming years. It matters to some consumers now, but I, I think you're absolutely right. Like Gen Z and Alpha coming up just after them have been weaned to ask these questions and care. And they all were not based in the EU, but I think what happens there is sort of a harbinger of things to come. And there's just a great deal of regulation that's been passed recently. And there's a great deal of focus on corporate transparency. It's a huge issue in the EU and for corporations that operate there. So all that stuff is just a hint of what's to come. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it'll be uh, difficult, but hopefully it won't be that difficult. And again, this is a hugely ambitious idea, this idea of G7 certification. There's a reason they're taking six months to, to basically test it. And it's possible it may not even be ready by September. So we'll see 
what comes up and how it works. But it's, 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 look, I think the industry needs to be more proactive as far as vouchsafing for the origin of its goods. And I think that's extremely important. And uh, this is going to be a major step to that. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I look forward to seeing how this plays out. I keep thinking, I don't know why I keep thinking about Y2K and the freak out that happened on the eve of Y2K. And then of course, all was well. So maybe uh, my inner optimist is naive or maybe my inner optimist is correct. We shall see. Yeah. Now, if you think about it, the reason why 2K wasn't so bad was because people did freak out and prep for it. So hopefully all the prep that's going on and all the endless discussions will prevent it from being too bad. Well, thank you. To sort of wrap up today, we have an interesting story that I did actually happen to see on social when it was happening, but didn't get the full story. And it has to do with disappearing Instagram account by a really well-known influencer, antique jewelry lover in our world. So please take it away, Rob. I can't kind of... Okay. So yeah, this was an interesting story and it was probably one of my favorite stories that I've written recently. Becky Stone, she's an Instagram account, Diamonds in the Library. She has, I think, 90,000 followers, like some ridiculous amount of followers. So she says a lot of her business is based on Instagram. She does a lot of freelance writing and copywriting, and that's how she gets a lot of her clients. One day she woke up and she couldn't get into her Instagram account. And she tried to reach out to Instagram customer service and they weren't particularly responsive. They told her she was impersonating someone, which didn't make any sense because she was the only one who was on the account and she was the only one who she showed pictures of. And what, what was weird about the whole thing is she pays for Meta Verified, which is a service that is supposed to help you prevent your account from getting locked out. And even Meta Verified couldn't help her. So she was going through like, all the procedures and, you know, she's trying to get a hold of people and people weren't getting back to her. So what she eventually did, which is the, the weirdest thing, but it worked, was she called her congressman, uh, who is Jamie Raskin, who's a relatively high profile congressman. And I think he's done a lot of work on social media. And they reached out to Raskin's office and Raskin sent something to Instagram. And the weird thing is, Within an hour, her account was reinstated. So this person with 90,000 followers who pays whatever, 11 bucks a month for Meta Verified, couldn't get any service. This high-profile congressman could. And I thought that was really, really weird and interesting. And sometimes when I do these stories, I like to try to think of like, what's the larger issue and what's the larger message or meaning of this? And to me, it's that these services are all free, even though Becky actually paid something, but we get very dependent on them and they become our life, right? They have all the power. And unless you're a congressman, it's not a level playing field, right? That is a really interesting story. And it is really upsetting on that one level that a she couldn't get the service she needed. She's clearly who she says she is. I mean, she's not there's nothing shady about her account or her. And yet it's I'm impressed that she was clever enough to think about contacting her congressperson or her representative and that they were I mean, it's both a great story and an uplifting story and a frustrating, demoralizing story at once because the fact that you know our democracy works that you can literally call and one hour later your problem is solved 
that must be a great comment for Raskin, who sounds like a very responsive individual when it comes to his constituents. It's curious. I don't use Instagram to the degree that Becky does, and I don't depend on it for my income. It is important to me, and I would be very upset and flummoxed and generally just fixated on getting it righted if I were dealing with the same issues, but it's not like I'm counting on it for income streams. So yeah, I guess I guess the moral of the story is call your congressperson. Call, call, call them up. That's what they're paid for. Well, thank you, Rob. It's been enlightening. Thank you. Always, always a pleasure to chat. And um, yes, very nice. And uh, I'm sorry your trip was canceled, but I'm sure you have another one coming right up. I sure do. I sure do. I'm on the way to Milan for an event with Audemars Piguet. All right. Great city, Milan. So yes, thank you. Uh, You know, it's nice to have a week off, actually, an unplanned week off. You know, I'll be working. I just won't be compromised by having this travel. So great chatting with you, Rob. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Riley McCaskill. Any views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the opinion of JCK, its management, or its advertisers. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.